Hello and welcome to Being Well. I'm Forrest Hansen. The events of the past few weeks have been one more reminder of something we've known for a very long time. Racism is a public health crisis in the United States. On top of the very real threats of physical violence faced by people of color, racism and racist structures place an enormous mental health burden on them. This is then compounded by a lack of access to mental health services and resources, which is just part of the reason that today I'm truly grateful to be learning from a wonderful psychologist, researcher, recovering academic, and expert in the mental health needs of racially diverse adolescents, young adults, and families, Dr. Alfie Breland Noble. Dr. Alfie is a licensed psychologist who spent 20 years in academic medicine, including the psychiatry departments at Duke and Georgetown Medical Center. She's written a wide variety of papers and articles focused on identifying the unique mental health challenges faced by people of color and at-risk youth, and the disparities in access to mental health services those groups face. Dr. Alfie is also the lead author of the Handbook of Mental Health and African American Youth, the host of the podcast Couched in Color with Dr. Alfie, and the founder of the mental health nonprofit, The Acoma Project. The Acoma Project works to change the perception and availability of mental health services for individuals, regardless of background, income, or identity. It's a fantastic organization, and if you'd like to learn more or join me in donating, I've included a link in the summary of today's podcast. So, Dr. Alfie, thank you again for taking the time to join me today. How are you doing? I'm good. I'm I'm real good after that introduction. My goodness. I'm looking around like, who's he talking about? Who's that woman? I need to meet her. Oh, she's, she's pretty fantastic. Yeah, absolutely. No, so happy to. Um, honestly, the work you're doing is really fantastic. And I'm just so excited to have the opportunity to talk with you today. Sure. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. So just kind of getting right into it here. It feels like there's been just this perfect storm of threat for lack of a better way of putting it, faced by people of color in general and the black community specifically. Of course, going back through a long time, but particularly recently in terms of how visible it's been. And first threats like the coronavirus, which has disproportionately affected black folks, black men in particular, and then repeated instances of racially motivated violence and mistreatment. And then on top of that, there's been this enormous secondary threat to mental health. And there are so many people right now who are understandably furious, heartbroken, exhausted, So I'd like to start, first of all, just by naming that and kind of calling it into the conversation. And then I would just love to, it's a broad place to start, but kind of get your thoughts on that and particularly get your thought on that exposure to the the mental health trauma that people are going through right now. Sure. So I have to be honest and say that for many years I resisted, this is probably the first time I've said this publicly, I resisted this idea of uh, identifying myself as a trauma researcher. And I'll tell you why, because as a black woman, I think that too often in my field in academic medicine, which is part of the reason I call myself a recovering academic, uh um, is because so much of the focus in the research literature, I'm a a mental health disparities and what we call a mental health services researcher by training. That's a very tiny little field, uh, services research Hmm. Um, and an intervention. So I develop interventions. And so part of the struggle has always been when in conversation like federal funding um, study section where we review grants. Anytime Black people came up, the conversation was almost always about trauma. There was no discussion of depression as an illness, right? How does it show up uniquely in Black people? Anxiety as an illness, how does it show up? It was always sort of the only conversations we could have about Black people were either they were severely traumatized, which is true, and or conduct disorder, right? It was, mm-hmm. it was what it always mm-hmm. was, especially when it came to kids, uh, these uh, disruptive behavior disorders. And then probably about four or five years ago, I leaned into it to, well, just to use that term, co-op that term and decided (laughs) that, you know, 
part of racism is that an institutionalized oppression is that the very things that an oppressed group might really need to be focused on, we we are discouraged from focusing on those things because they are so negatively associated with us, right? So it's almost like the only way Black people have anything related to mental illness, they got to be traumatized. Well, we are traumatized, right? But what we don't want to talk about is those structures hmm. that exist that cause and lend themselves to the trauma. And so hmm. now I'm at a place, especially in this moment, where I recognize that our mental health Right. And naming our mental health and centering my mental health as a black person and by extension uh, for people of color, young people of color in particular, which is my focus, that is vital, is critical and that I am comfortable in my own skin saying, look, I'm black. Black people are traumatized. It's not that I choose to be traumatized. It's that yeah. I function in a society that throws so much stuff at me and I feel like I'm swatting all the time trying to you know, get away from it. So that's been the evolution for me. And I think for many people where we are now is having you as not being like, you know, as far as I can tell, you're not a person of color and having you name these things, honestly, and just saying, yeah. you know, as a matter of fact, I don't know that white people always understand that that in and of itself is huge. It doesn't fix everything, yeah. but it is huge to say there are racist structures in place. There's institutionalized racism. There's institutionalized discrimination. Saying, calling a thing a thing is, is what I say now. How far that goes towards, I don't know, supporting your black brothers and sisters and other mm. people of color. That goes, you know, it doesn't go the whole way. But it, it's a step in the right direction to just say it. And that also contributes, I think, to our mental health, because we don't have to feel like we're checking ourselves for holes. Like, did that really just happen? Or, you know, am I the only one who saw that? Oh, for sure. You know what I mean? So that's, so that all of the that. The gaslighting associated with this is just a huge part of it. You got it. Well, I mean, for starters, thank you so much for, for, for naming that inside of this conversation. But as you're saying, like, it's just the starting point and it's yeah. a necessary starting point that like we have to do, we have to call the apple an apple before we can talk yes. about what the apple yes. is or what we're going to yes. do about it. Yes. Um, you know, but like that's where you got, yes. that's the that's the starting line that we go from there, hopefully. Right. And uh, one of the things that you just said there that I thought was great was about your work with youth and about the uh -huh. exposure that youth have to traumatic events. One of the One of the big vehicles for that is social media. And right now what you're seeing is you're seeing all of this content floating around on social media in particular, uh, videos, photos mm -hmm. that are extremely violent and emotional. And it's really important on the one hand that people see these videos and recognize the injustices that are happening, particularly white people. Mm -hmm. And on the other hand, there's this re-traumatizing effect, uh, secondary traumatic stress, other things like that, that can happen when people see these things over and over and over again. Yes. And I would just love to know, what have you seen here? And how do you recommend people stay engaged in this without becoming overwhelmed by it? Sure. So a couple things. One is I have to acknowledge, I actually named her race wrong. Originally, I said she was an African-American scholar. She's not. Hmm. Um, I believe from what I can see, I believe she's white. And she's the person, Geronimus, Professor Geronimus, University of Michigan. She's actually the person who put a label on this uh, idea of the weathering effect. And how that repeated exposure to trauma really does sort of eat away at Black people from the inside, right? In the early 90s, she came up with this term. So I, I really want to correct that because I think I might have said that somewhere publicly. She was African-American, so I want to make sure I fix that. The What she's talking about is real, right? And so this vicarious trauma that Black people experience from repeated exposure, right? It's not just the stuff that we see on television. 
it is the stuff that we know from history. My, mm-hmm. I am Gen X. My parents are uh, people of the civil rights generation. My mom's deceased, but my dad and I have lots of conversations. He grew up in Mississippi. It doesn't get too much worse than Mississippi in terms of virulent racism. Yeah. Um, and having those kinds of conversations, all of those conversations where you're educating your kids, right? I have a mentee. Her name is Dr. Uh, Rihanna Anderson. Rihanna talks about a lot about racial socialization and how that happens in Black families. Part of racial socialization is educating your children, right? Let's think about, for example, I have a son. The talk, air quotes, that Black mamas and Black dads have to have with those Black boys, right, when they get around 10, 11 years old, about how do you keep yourself safe. Yeah. All of those things in some ways are can be traumatizing, right? That's exposure to trauma, hearing these negative experiences that people have had, so on and so forth. So when we think about current times and we think about this exposure to trauma, it's repeated. So it's not just what we see in the videos. It is also what our individual personal experiences are. There's also this idea that as a Black person, you're only so many degrees separated from other Black people. So even if you're a middle, upper middle class Black person, that's not protecting you, right? My brother, my spouse, every one of them has a story. Now, my spouse has a PhD. He's a doctor too. My brother has a master's. My dad has a master's. None of that has protected any of them from being stopped and, and harassed by police, right? Not all, but the ones who harass my family members. So those are all the things that I think lend themselves to vicarious trauma and why Mm. I say it's so important for young people and for all of us to curate our news, right? You only need to take it in bits and pieces, right? Only when you're ready for it and to be super careful about what you share on social media. So I have to say this one quick story. So I was interviewing Charlemagne the guy who is amazing. He's just Mm. a wonderful, Mm -hmm. nice guy. And one of the things he said that made it click for me, he was like, yeah, I was watching, I forget uh, what news station he said. And I felt it was almost like I was watching Netflix and somebody immediately shifted the channel and didn't tell me. Meaning he was watching something that was you know, pretty harmless and fine. And the next second yeah. he was watching George Floyd's death. Right. And he yeah. was like, well, I didn't get a warning for this. That's the kind of stuff that I think is key. So what I tell people is you need those sensitivity filters in social media and you need to give people warnings, put a blur it out first, like give it two or three seconds to be blurry on your social media feed and put the uh, uh, comment at the bottom of it that says trigger warning or this is, you know, sensitive content. Mm, If if mm -hmm. you don't want to see this, scroll past this video Mm -hmm. instead of just bombarding us with it because it's too much. No, I think those are awesome points, and it's a great context to just let people know about. And another phrase that kind of relates to weathering is allostatic load. It's something oh, yes. that I know that you're a real uh, expert in. You you had a, yes. I was becoming familiar with your Twitter feed, and you had a comment about doing some work related to weathering and allostatic load, and a yeah. interaction that you had with a advisor way back way back when, where they said something along the lines of allostatic load is like too technical a concept to be kind of relevant to general psychology or something like that, which I thought was just completely insane. So it sounds a little techie, but really when you first understand what it is, it's very, very grokkable. Would you mind kind of explaining that for people? Sure. So basically allostatic load, really all it refers to is the wear and tear Mm -hmm. uh, that accumulates on an individual who is real simple, who's exposed to repeated and chronic stress. That's it, right? It's on the inside of the body, right? So it's, it's really not that challenging a concept, I think, to understand I, like unlike that guy who will remain nameless forever, he knows who he is. Unlike yeah. that person who told me that was not something that psychologists need to know. And I think, and this, this, I, I have to, I feel like I have to say it. Go ahead. This yeah. is the ways in which 
uh, that's an example of the ways in which institutionalized racism creeps into. Absolutely. Right? Because yeah. the idea is that something and the term was really coined in reference to African-Americans, black people, people of color. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Something that people look at that as esoteric. Well, that doesn't have anything to do with the rest of us. That's just those black people. And so everybody doesn't need to know how to treat something or how to address something that only occurs in black people, mm-hmm. air quotes, right? And so the very idea, the fact that he could not accept that as a concept, right? I'm so happy that we're in a different place nine, 10 years later, where at least somebody like you can say, oh mm. yeah, that's a thing. Explain to us what it is. Because yeah, when my totally. kids come, you know, get to college and graduate school, even though my daughter's resistant being a psychologist, I'm working on it. Um, <laughs> it's all right. My dad's been saying that I've been resisting it for years and years. So right look, there with you. Lean in, lean in, <laughs> right? Let it happen. Come join us. So, so you know, so when by the time she comes through, it won't be an esoteric concept. It'll be, yeah. yes, this is a thing and it affects people. So mm. thank you for giving me the opportunity to talk about that. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, kind of an obvious question that people might be thinking right now, are you stuck with this? Like if you, if you, I I don't know, to use kind of non-technical language, if you have a history of traumatic experiences, wearing, weathering, allostatic load, whatever, are you just like trapped with that? Or is there something that you can do inside yourself or outside of yourself to work with those experiences? So I think there are multiple layers to that. I think mm. what the literature would tell us is that once it happens, it's happened. So there are some things physically that you may not be able to undo. But it's like with yeah. many things, right? You think about, like I have a relative who had really cr- pretty chronic, significant heart disease, right? Mm. And so he has, you know, he over the years, he was getting injection fraction measured. Well, there was he was obese. He lost, I don't know, 80 pounds. And his, uh, I remember this was a couple years ago. And when he went back in to get injection fraction measured, it had improved by like 30, 40%. And the physicians were like, blown. They're like, oh my God, like, what, is, what did you do? What happened? Well, he lost weight, right? And he changed his diet and he started exercising. And so I think that while you may never get rid of all, right, of the negative physiological effects, I think what you can do is sort of moderate or mediate some of those negative effects if you change your behavior, Mm. right? So I don't think it's something that's 100% permanent. I think what Mm -hmm. the literature says to us is that as you lower stress levels, you lower the the physiological negative impacts that go along with high allostatic load. So it's related to stress, right? And it's a direct correlation. It's not an inverse correlation. As your stress goes up, so does allostatic load. As your stress goes down, you reduce, right? You reduce the negative impacts of that. So I try to always talk in, one of the things I feel like I'm good at is talking in plain language, some of these concepts that people want to, you know, talk over people's heads with. Um, And so hopefully that was clear. Yeah, no, I think it totally was. I think you're a really good translator, as you're saying, (laughs) these these things that, that sometimes can feel very unapproachable, but in truth, are really very kind of understandable and straightforward. Yes. So as a real expert, thoughtful person in this territory who is also exposed both directly and in secondary ways and through, I'm sure, just the work you do, working with kids who have themselves been exposed to a lot of horrible stuff in their lives. What do you do in your life, if you don't mind sharing, to kind of help manage these things? Yeah, I don't mind sharing. So, uh, and I thank you for the question. Mm. Um, The biggest thing is meditation. Mm. So I will be honest and open and transparent and say, 
I probably should be in the DSM, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, right? Next to GAD, Generalized Anxiety Disorder. Mm-hmm. That's me, mm-hmm. right? I am a complete worry ward. So when I talk to kids, I say, basically, think about a worry ward. The worry never stops, right? Um, and it's really out of proportion to whatever the event is, right? So I'm the kind of person who, you know, through meditation, I've been able to really manage that and sort of get that way down. But I'm the kind of person who I remember when I was in training in uh, graduate school would make comments in class and then literally after class would spend the next two or three days worrying about if I used the word correctly. That's not healthy. Yeah. Right. And so that is like that gad on top of racism, on top of sexism. Right. I'm so worried because I don't want people to see any dings in the armor, right? I'm mm-hmm. the, the lone mm-hmm. black girl in the class. I don't want to be the one messing up words and mispronouncing and not using them correctly. So that to me, right, for another person, they could care less if they mispronounce the word. I remember somebody, I was watching someone once and they said epitome when they meant epitome. <laughs> Didn't even phase them. They just like, you know what I mean? Kept, like just whatever. Kept on rolling, kept, yeah. yeah, it kept on rolling. And I'm like, ooh, I want to be like that one day. So it is... For me, it's meditation. And I've been mm. an avid meditator for about 17 years. And even though I say, you know, it's oxymoronic, I shouldn't be doing it because the point of meditation is to sort of is to be present and to and mindfulness meditation in particular. I'm sorry, I should say that mindfulness. I practice mindfulness. But I have a tracker on my phone. I'm embarrassed to say where I'm <laughs> tracking my daily meditation. And at this point, I'm up to literally 3.2 years. Uh, that's the day to geek in me. Of daily wow, meditation. Really? Every daily. I have not missed a day in 3.2 years, but I've been practicing for seven about 17. But that's the only thing that keeps me right. I also work out a lot. Um, my favorite, my favorite workouts to do, I'm an old head now, I'm Gen X, so just bear with me. <laughs> is step aerobics, right? That's back in the day. But I found a new step aerobics that is like just amazing because it's this guy named Phil Whedon and he does it to hip hop. So Gen X, I'm a rap Mm -hmm. fan. So Mm -hmm. we do step to rap and it is like, it's like, I'm not even working out is, you know, and I lift weights. So it's really, and I had a great conversation with my brother last night, who's, you know, for full context, he's here in our home with us helping take care of my dad who has has some health issues right before COVID bro. It was like real significant health issues. Mm. And we were having a conversation and I said to him, part of, you know, me taking care of myself because I know I have anxiety because I know it's, it's genetic. It's in our family. I know everybody. I can pretty much name everybody who has it, whether they acknowledge it or not, is not having that tendency to be negative. Right. And that sounds like it sounds kind of basic or like it almost sounds like, I don't know, like pie in the sky. Don't be negative. But it's really about when you encounter situations, it is really preventing yourself or finding a way to stop yourself from going down that worst case scenario path, right? And that's what we teach people with cognitive behavioral therapy. But sometimes we have to translate that and say to people, instead of saying, you know, thoughts, feelings, and behaviors, right? Because that doesn't resonate with everybody. Sometimes it's as simple as saying, when you find yourself sort of drifting, bring yourself back to the present, right? And just pay attention to what you're thinking. Um, and so for me, I do that personally, I have to do that. So it's mindfulness. It's a lot of exercising and it's paying, it's curating what goes on in my head It's stopping the podcast, right? The podcast is saying, this is awful. Worst case scenario. You said that word wrong. You're terrible. I don't like your clothes, right? That can, mm. it can go and go and go. And it's yeah. stopping that and mm-hmm. just, just stopping it. So yeah, that's what I do. 
Yeah, no, I think that that's a series of awesome practices for sure. <laughs> and when I was actually preparing for this uh, this interview, I watched a video of you where you you named that you had, you know, you thought of yourself as being an anxious person, maybe yeah. floating around generalized anxiety disorder, however you want to frame it. And that was a real kind of bonding moment for me because I too have a history of anxiety and kind of anxious experiences out in the world, including a family history kind of through my mom and her side of the family. Yeah. Um, and then I want to kind of, poke at something that you just said, which I thought was really, really interesting, where you said, regardless of whether they name it or not, in terms yeah. of other people that you know, maybe are friends with, who might be dealing with experiences of anxiety. And there was this other video that I watched where you said something that I really glommed onto, which is, stress is a word we use in communities of color when we really mean anxious. And for me, that was, you know, as a white person, that was a total yeah. aha moment in terms of my yeah. own experience. Like, yeah. there's so many times where I talk about, oh, I'm really stressed. Like, I felt radically stressed over the last couple of weeks. And I watched the thing and I was like, I haven't been feeling stressed at all. I've been feeling incredibly anxious. And like, that's the whole <laughs> thing, right? It was a light bulb moment. And then, okay, I can have interventions that help me deal with that anxiety. Now that I've kind of named it, I can name it, I can claim it, and then I can deal with it. Um, and so I just wanted to kind of like raise that. Why is that distinction you think so important to make that idea of rather than calling it stress, calling it anxiety or whatever it is about labeling things accurately? Yeah. Oh, it's, I'm so appreciative of you for saying, yeah, just being so honest about it. Like yeah. it just, I almost want to cry because I'm like, yes, mm. somebody gets it. <laughs> I think it is because to say that we're anxious, I'll say for myself, mm. is to say that we have a stigmatized illness. To say that we're stressed says that we're air quotes normal, but what exactly is normal? Like normal means nothing. Right. And so I try to tell people normal is relative. It's what's good and healthy for you. Hopefully that's your normal. But that's, you know, that varies for every person. And so this idea of stress, stress is acceptable, right? Everybody says, you know, I hear all the time and I tell people, stop saying it. I happen to be, you know, like a lunar eclipse. You're only going to see one every hundred or so years. I'm a black Catholic, <laughs> right? So there's not a lot of us, uh, very few of us. Um, but my spouse is a Protestant. He's Baptist and one kid's Catholic and one kid's Baptist. I have a girlfriend who calls us confused. I say, no, baby, we are an ecumenical family. So let's Oh, that's right. amazing. Um, <laughs> but the, but you know, even in our communities of color, when we talk about church, mm. people will say, I'm too blessed to be stressed. Mm. I just, that just, oh, it makes my like blood boil because I feel like what you're telling, what we're telling people inadvertently, a lot of times it's inadvertent is that if you have anxiety, right? Mm. We're just going to call a thing a thing. It's not yeah. just stress. But if you're feeling anxiety, the fact that you're feeling anxiety means that somehow you're failing in some other aspect of your life, i.e. your faith journey, right? We don't want to send that message. What The message that we want to send to people is that part of your faith journey, for me, is acknowledging that that's what you're struggling with. If you can acknowledge, like you just said, if you can acknowledge that what it is is anxiety, then you can try to work on addressing the anxiety. But if what you're calling it is stress, I want to understand, you know, maybe you can educate me. What exactly is the cure, right? Or what is the fix? Or what is the intervention for stress? What do we say? If you're stressed, go on vacation. Okay, everybody can't go on vacation. If you're stressed, go get a pedicure. Okay, we definitely can't do that now. Do you know what I mean? And so <laughs> the interventions for stress and the yeah. interventions for anxiety can be very different. But I think at the core, a lot, even us for us within ourselves, don't always want to acknowledge that what we're struggling with may be 
and mental health problems. So your Oprah aha moment, like when you say you had the Oprah, like I love yeah, Oprah, totally. Light bulb, aha thing. moment, totally. Yeah, that's important because that then gave you a pivot. And then one other thing I'll say is, I think when we can have that aha moment, or and or when we can accept that this thing that we're dealing with, maybe depression or maybe anxiety or maybe some combination, I feel like that gives us in some ways freedom because Mm. now you're free to go try to find the thing that's going to help you and be active in the process. That's if you accept it Mm -hmm. as opposed to you keep saying it's stress and, oh, you know, it'll be over and it's coronavirus and it's all this other stuff that disempowers you. You're not empowered, right? Because how do you fix that? We're not getting off of stay-at-home orders fully in, in the near future, as far as I can tell, yeah, right? Totally. And so you're still going to have that stuff out there. Mm. So you, I, I want us to be active and conscious about the language that we use. I want us to be okay with the idea that anxiety is a thing. It's not your fault. It's an illness and it's genetic. And so if it's genetic and it's an illness, you can do something about it. Mm-hmm. So for me, that's that's that distinction between stress and anxiety. Yeah, no, totally agree. I think that's completely fantastic. And I just want to kind of give you an opportunity here to talk a little bit about your nonprofit, The Acoma Project, because I think yeah. that it directly ties in to what we're talking about in terms of yeah. raising awareness about mental health and giving yeah. people, particularly kids, the language to start talking about these things at a young age. Yes. Oh, I love it. Thank you so much for that. So Acoma, I'll tell you what the acronym was yeah, and it please. sort of morphed over time. So originally, I'm uh, I'm gonna date myself. But it's okay. Um, <laughs> a coma stood for. It started in 1999. It was my research lab. It was my academic research lab, and it started then because I was fresh out of graduate school and I went to the American Psychological Association convention, and that's when David Satcher, one of my idols, was our Surgeon General, and he released this huge report um, about culture, race, ethnicity, a supplement to the mental health big report that he put out. And I had a chance to meet him. Um, and so it was quick, you know, a uh, photo op for me, shook his hand and kept it moving. But it was just so moving for me to hear this black man on stage say, everybody deals with mental illness. There's no, no racial ethnic group has a monopoly on mental illness. Right. And so from there, it was sort of this aha moment. My Oprah aha moment was, it, we talk about evidence-based, right? And I'm sure you all talk about that all the time. We talk about the evidence-based. The evidence-based is important. Mm. Part of the challenge is the evidence-based almost never includes people of color in the studies in large enough samples where we can say definitively, you know how to treat one thing or another. And I would know because yeah, I've been totally. on, right? I've been on some of them. Some of those randomized controlled trials were, you know, like 10% of the sample with people of color and you don't even mm-hmm. know what those mm-hmm. groups were. Mm-hmm. You can't really derive solid evidence for these groups from that. So let me say that. All right. So the long story short is I decided then that there had to be a way to create evidence for all these other communities that had been left out. One. And then two, even if we just take the evidence at face value and let's say as a psychologist, I say, okay. Cognitive behavioral therapy is the way to treat depression. Okay. I still got to get the kids to come to me. Mm, They're not coming, mm -hmm. right? They won't come. Even though I'm black, a person of color, they're not coming to me. So a coma was really about, it was called, we started with, and it took me forever to come up with the acronym, so I have to say it, (laughs) African-American knowledge optimized for mindfully healthy adolescents. So even back then, 1999, I was thinking about mindfulness. Then it just sort of morphed into a coma, and it is a play on the word akoma, which is a West African Adinkra symbol that means tolerance, and the symbol is a heart. 
Mm. All of that symbolism. I had a girlfriend, Dr. Monica Williams, who told me, I'm sorry, Dr. Monica Mitchell, who told me branding is key. So that's where I got that from. So Monica, shouts out to you. So anyway, that's where it came from. It was my research lab. And then last year I made it a nonprofit so I could do the same thing just under the auspices of a nonprofit. We still do research. Mm -hmm. We still do outreach. And just as you said, every time we do outreach, we are out there trying to give our young people tools. And so I I feel like I just got to say this one thing. We're giving them tools because that may be the only time some of these kids will ever be in front of a psychologist or a mental health professional. Right. So I would be remiss in not having you walk away from me with something that I hope that you would use because you may never come sit in the chair with me. Right. Because we know there are these disparities, even though they're relatively equal rates of depression, particularly somewhat. So somewhat that's the case for anxiety before depression. Right. We know it's somewhere depending on who you ask. The epidemiologists say it's somewhere between eight and 15 percent of teenagers in the United States, 12 to 18 meet criteria for depression. That doesn't vary by race as far as we know. What varies is who gets care. And it's not just about money. Even when people have money, they don't go. So that's mm. what a coma is about. We got to get people into care because of that stigma. No, I think that's a, an amazing summary of a whole lot of actual, <laughs> like very complicated information and research. So th- thank you for doing that. Uh, sure. And yeah, and and I mean, I think this is kind of a tricky question to get into. So, yeah. you know, yeah. help me navigate this but like why do you think that is that people don't go even if the end to be clear like the biggest sure. issue here at least in in my appraisal and let me know what you think yes. is access the the biggest yes. issue is access that is like 90 percent of the problem and then yes. maybe 10 percent of the problem of this question is like okay even when you have access why aren't you going so i just want to like ground that appropriately that like the big sure. problem is getting more resources getting more information out there all of that but inside right. of that, like, why do you think that even when people have access, there there is this stigma and they right. don't necessarily take advantage of it? Sure. So access, right? Now, that's part of, that's our wheelhouse in services research. It really is about who gets care and who pays for it. Yeah. That pretty much sums up services. Yep. Now, my services, people probably beat me over the head, but that's really what it is. Who gets care and who pays for it? So the access issue is so loaded with so many things, right? It's a complex issue. Some of it is money. Right. But even when you what the literature tells us, even when you control for socioeconomic status, control for type of insurance, private versus public, underinsured versus right, uh, uninsured. What you find is you still have an underrepresentation relative to their prevalence of mental illness in that population and underutilization by African-Americans. What we know is African-Americans, Latinx specifically and Asian-Americans. Other populations, I don't know that we have a lot of enough data. Maybe we do. I don't, I just don't know that literature. So the access issue is somewhat about money. It's also about things like who's providing care. Hmm. Are there, is there enough ethnic, racial, cultural diversity among the people who are the providers? When you look at PhD psychologists or SIDE, for example, 4% are African-American. I don't know the rates of other racial ethnic. So at 4%, That's not enough people to treat all the folks that need help. That's one. Two is for other populations, people of color, they're the linguistic barriers, right? So Mm -hmm. put all that to the side. Let's say most people have to go to a white provider. Okay. What is the cultural competence training, the cultural training that providers get who are not of color that allows them to effectively engage, right? So 
it used to be the average number of sessions, this was maybe five or six years ago, that people went, you may know this better than I do, was two. That's the average nationwide, two visits. Yeah. So if you don't connect with that patient in that first visit, they're going to vote with their feet. They're not coming back. Mm-hmm. So it's all, those to me are all the things related to access. And I think those also speak to why people don't go. So the final thing I'll say about that is this, and it relates to me, and it comes from some of the data that we collected very early on when I was in the Department of Psychiatry at Duke. And I had an NIH uh, award, and we were studying what we call treatment engagement. What's the stuff that's going to get people to come in care and stay? And this mom, I'll never forget this mom. And I almost cried when she said it. You can tell, as a, as you've heard, I'm a crier. And so she, what she said was, Dr. Alfie, I'm already Black. I'm already a woman. I don't also need to be crazy. That's the issue. When you have a marginalized identity, anything that adds to your marginalization, I think you don't want to be associated with it. And so if you're, like we talked about earlier, stressed, air quotes, but really what you are is anxious. Um, You have social anxiety or something of that nature. You don't want to tell people that because your fear is these institutions that are telling you you're not okay because they don't value your blackness, because they don't value your sexual orientation or sexual identity. You're certainly not going to want to walk into these situations and environments and say, yeah, I'm also anxious. I have a mental illness, knowing that that is a stigmatized thing. Right. So for me, that's really what it's about. I don't want people to know this because I don't need any more trouble. Hmm. I mean, I think that is such a poignant reflection that that mm-hmm. woman had. I mean, man, talk about like mm-hmm. a deeply, deeply touching moment. And it's really understandable. Mm-hmm. And it kind of gets back to what we were talking about with weathering and allostatic load and all of those things. Like when you feel like three legs of the chair have already been kind of kicked out from under you, you don't want to kick out the fourth leg. Like just That's to kind of. I love that analogy. Mm-hmm. That's it. Yeah, just kind of put it as like simple as possible. So just try to kind of get to the practice of it really quick here. When you're working with kids, when you're talking about these issues, what do you say to them? Like, how do you start to unravel some of this, this huge ball of yard, like all of this content? Yeah. The the greatest, one of the greatest assets we have is black celebrities who are open about struggling with mental illness. Mm -hmm. Oh my goodness. You know, the like I said on CNN, I, I meant it. What Taraji has done with that foundation yeah, and her totally. director, Tracy, is I'm serious. They have, you know, with the numbers of people they've been able to encourage to go seek mental health treatment. Some of them, they're only going because Taraji said it was cool. Mm-hmm. Right. Because Taraji yep. said you need to do this. Right. That is that's huge. I can talk till I'm blue in the face, which would be really hard for me because I'm a chocolate girl. But I can talk till I'm blue in the face. <laughs> And they're still not going to listen because they're, yes, that doctor lady, that Dr. Alfie, right? But if she says it, if Charlemagne says it, if Brandon Marshall says it, mm-hmm. if Kevin Love says it, you know what I'm saying? They see all these cool people that they respect and value. Totally. For the kids, it's like, oh, that's what that is. So that to me is a huge piece of it. Another piece of it is just the idea of normalizing the conversation and, and putting it in really sort of not basic as in people are ignorant, but basic is in sort of it's everyday parlance. We want to be able to talk about anxiety. That's what we do. And depression and just say, look, the blues is one thing, but we really want you to be informed about here are the signs and symptoms of depression. And so it's that it's like really giving people the information. And then the final thing is having real people 
tell their stories, right? So I know Nami has this a storytelling, um, I don't call it a thing, that's belittling, but has a storytelling program that they use. Mm-hmm. Um, before I even knew about that, years ago when I was at Duke, um, she's still a close, close girlfriend of mine, a woman who lost her son to suicide. Um, her name is Kathy Williams. Kathy has been an avid suicide prevention advocate for probably 25 years and like sort of self-taught. She's done some trainings now at this point um, and she goes out and shares her story. So her people sharing their stories and in her case, it is there were all these signs and symptoms of depression that I missed in my teenager Mm. and she runs them down. I saw this, I saw this, I saw this. And so what she's doing is providing that psychoeducation without lecturing. Right. She's saying my son used to play the saxophone and then all of a sudden he just stopped. I didn't know that was a symptom of depression. I have another family friend I grew up with who died by suicide uh, probably seven or eight years ago now. And the day that like the week before he passed, he started giving away all his stuff. And he's African-American. None of my friends. Now, this is what I do. None of my friends knew that that's what was going on. And they were so shocked when they found out. So it is really talking to children, talking to young people and saying, look, you're not weird. This is not a weird thing. Look at Charlemagne. Look at Taraji. Look at Halle Berry. Look at Missy Elliott, who's uh, from my same hometown. They're talking about the times in their lives when they struggle with their mental health. If it's acceptable for them to have gone through it, don't you think it's okay for you to have gone through, you know, and then yeah. the kids are like, oh, yeah, Dr. Alfie, yeah. You know, and they tell you all the stuff they've been, you know, they've been going through yeah, because totally. it's okay. It's okay. Mm. No, I think that's totally right on the money. You've named a whole bunch of resources here. I'm going to do my best to link to them in the uh, description of the podcast. So if you're interested in that CNN conversation with you and Taraji, which was wonderful, or some of the other resources that you've named, um, there'll be linked to there'll be links to all of those, including, as I said before, a donation link for a coma. Um, so hopefully we could get that rolling as well. Thank you. As we kind of get to the end here, Dr. Alfie, um, you've named kids a lot during the course of this conversation, and you yeah. too were a kid once. And one of the yeah. questions that we like to ask everyone who comes on the podcast, uh, and I'm particularly interested in yours in this whole context, is if you had the opportunity to go back in time and talk to yourself as a kid, as a young adult, you know, whatever means the most for you, um, what would you want to say to that person? Oh, boy. I bet I'm probably not the only one who gets teary-eyed when I think about it. So I'm teary. So I would go back to my 14-year-old self when mm. I was in the ninth grade, and I was one of two two black cheerleaders on a cheerleading squad, Princess Anne Junior High School. I'm going to name a thing, a thing. Um, and I would say to myself, go hang out with Coach Reed. Um, there's this old, there's this famous basketball player. He's retired now. His name is J.R. Reed. His fa- he went to Chapel Hill. His father was my middle school PE teacher and reminded me of my dad. I think, and I know Coach Reed is deceased. I adored Coach Reed um, because Coach Reed was a person in that school, which was predominantly white, who made me feel like I was okay, just like I am. Mm. That, that, you know, that being Alfie, not only is it okay, but it's a beautiful, it's a good thing, right? And you're going to do great things. I would have spent more time with him. I think I felt like at the time, um, I definitely know I had low self-esteem, right? This was the 80s. Yeah, this was the 80s. And so at that time, there weren't Black people on TV. There was no such thing as social media. There were no cell phones. We didn't have any of that. And so the only images we had, just the whole thing, the thing, only image I had was different strokes. 
And what was different strokes? The two little poor, destitute black kids get taken in by the rich white family, and that's what saves them. That's all we had, right? And, or Tootie on the Fast Life with Roll. I love her. Now, I love Kim Field, Freeman, <laughs> but roll around on roller skates with the ponytails, right? That's all we had. Yeah. And so I didn't get to see enough images of girls who look like me that would allow me to feel like just like I am mm-hmm. is okay. So I would go back and tell that little girl, go hang out with Coach Reed because he's nice and he thinks the world of you, number one. And number two, I wish somebody had said to me, uh, med- I mean, I don't even know if people were doing that then. They probably were. But like meditation, one, like I want you to start practicing. And then two, they would have. I would have had somebody label my anxiety for me. Mm. I didn't have a label. I did not have a label. So those are the things I would go back and I would hug her and say, oh, honey, you are so beautiful. You're so smart. You are wonderful. You are perfect. Exactly like you are. And I got to say this. I got to put this in the universe. What I say to kids all the time now, everywhere I go when I do public speaking is I end it by saying to my young people, you are valuable just because you exist. Yeah, I think that that just right there, just with the space all around it, for all the people who are involved in the kind of work that you're doing, that's probably the most important message is that that point around representation that you made, representation of of good idols, good people to look up to, people who look like you who are doing great things in the world um, and can make you feel like you yourself are capable of doing great things in the world and that you're really okay without changing in the variety of ways that society kind of wants you to change. So amen. On that, Dr. Alfie, thank you so much for doing this today. This was absolutely amazing for me. And I am sure was absolutely amazing for the people who are listening as well. It was wonderful. I really thank you all for inviting me. And like you said, representation matters. And we need our white brothers and sisters to amplify us especially during these times, but hopefully long-term because you all help us reach a much wider audience and Mm. lots of people get the opportunity to see all kinds of people can help each other. And that's really what we want. That's what I want my kids to see. Yeah. Amen. Doctor, thank you so much. You are a rock star. Oh my God. So today I had the absolute pleasure of speaking with Dr. Alfie Breland Noble. Dr. Alfie is so clearly just a profoundly compassionate, dedicated, and thoughtful person, and it was truly just a total joy to talk with her. We had a wide-ranging conversation focused on a variety of topics related to how structural racism places an enormous mental health burden on communities of color. And then, piled on top of that enormous pressure, is this big disparity in access to mental health services that are available to people of color. There were so many takeaways from the conversation, but for me, what kind of seemed to keep on coming up over and over again was the importance of calling something what it is. Whether it's just naming structural racism as an enormous factor in the conversations that we have about mental health for different groups of people, or it's accurately calling something anxiety rather than stress. Putting the correct name to something allows us to move forward with more accurate action dedicated to solving the problem at hand. Before we go, I wanted to remind you about Dr. Alfie's nonprofit, The Acoma Project. I've donated to The Acoma Project myself. They do really amazing work to change the perception and the availability of mental health services for individuals regardless of background, income, or identity. If you'd like to learn more or join me in donating, 
I've included a link in the summary of today's podcast. And if you've made it this far, I also wanted to remind you about our Patreon account. So we're on patreon.com slash beingwellpodcast. For just the cost of a couple cups of coffee a month, you can support the show and receive a variety of extras, including expanded show notes and monthly special Q&As where Rick and I take your questions. And as a final request, we would really appreciate it if you would take the time to subscribe, leave a rating, and maybe a positive review of the show as well. It really does help us out. So until next time, thanks for listening.